0: Welcome to Verse by Verse. I'm Clinton DeFrance. If you have questions or contributions to what it is that we are studying, uh, please share them with me at vbvpodcast at gmail.com. You can also learn more about this teaching program or find more teaching at vbvpodcast.com. Today we'll be studying Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 with an emphasis on verses 8 through 12. It seems that a poem or hymn was in Paul's mind when he wrote Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Many scholars have noticed some structural features in this section which lead to that conclusion, such as the presence of a recurring chorus to the praise of his glory in verses 6, 12, and 14, and a progressive flow in the three stanzas which precede that chorus, namely that verses 3 through 6 describe and celebrate the work of God the Father in redemption, verses 7 through 12, the work of Jesus Christ the Son, in the same, and verses 13 through 14, the work of the Holy Spirit, in the same, with all of them interacting with and tying together the content of each other. If this observation is true, there is more than twice as much space given to the work of Jesus Christ than to the work of the Father or the Spirit. That is appropriate, I think, not because the Father and Spirit are less important or worthy of less praise, but because of the magnitude and centrality of Christ's role in this program and purpose which is being discussed here. The Father sends the Son— and crowns the Son with glory and honor and gives Him a name that is above every name and all authority in heaven and earth, placing everything under Jesus' feet except for Himself, says Matthew 28, 18, and 1 Corinthians 15, 27. The Spirit calls all humanity to come to Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. He works to transform the faithful into the image and likeness of Jesus, John 16:14. Galatians 4.19, 5.22-25, and Revelation 22.17. Jesus fulfills the Father's will and brings to pass all things that God has purposed, Hebrews 10.7. And Jesus is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to the world, Acts 2.33. So it is only fitting that the hymn of praise should give preeminent place and abundant space To the consideration of Jesus Christ. In verse 7, Paul summarizes the work of Christ by stating that he has redeemed humanity from bondage to sin. He has secured our freedom and purchased us once again as God's possession through his death on the cross by taking away our sin. And by this purchase, Jesus has made us something different than we were before when we were lost and dead in trespasses and sins. Both the payment to purchase us and the honor and glory into which he has brought us are called by Paul riches of kindness and grace which he has lavished on us, Ephesians 1, 7-8. He has made us and he is making us what God would have us be to the praise of his glory. As Paul contemplates this work, he offers some important and noteworthy observations about how that was accomplished and what it teaches us about God and His love for creation. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 8. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. There are some points I should make about this section before proceeding to discuss it. First, depending on your translation, the content of this section in Ephesians will be punctuated differently. In the Greek, it is one long sentence, which would be very difficult to read and follow, according to English conventions. So virtually all mainstream translations have decided to break it up into more succinct thoughts. However, those decisions always, without exception, represent the best interpretive efforts of the translators— and it can significantly alter the meaning of the section depending on where periods are placed, because these marks signal for us to attach phrases to one sentence or another in terms of relationship. Without taking the time to argue for each case, I will say that after comparing various translations and reading through the passage carefully, I am convinced that the New American Standard Version 1995 update has made the best decisions on this matter, and I've chosen to follow their course. For this reason, I suggest that the phrase, in all wisdom and insight, belongs to the sentence in verse 9 rather than verse 8. Some translations suggest that the wisdom and insight is something that God has given to us through his grace. That may be true, generally speaking, of wisdom and insight, but I do not believe that that is Paul's point here. Paul is stating here that God has used his own wisdom and insight in the revelation of the mystery of his will, and then he explores some of the manifestations of that wisdom and insight. What is the mystery of God's will? In the context of modern American Christianity, there is a tendency to read and think about the Bible in purely individualistic terms. So most people who believe in God tend to ask, what is God's specific will for my life? And because there is a universal sense in rational people that moral and ethical matters are the same for all people, those are not as interesting in this kind of stream of thought. Thus, when people ask about God's will or express an interest in knowing God's will, They are generally not so concerned about learning his opinion regarding right and wrong, but regarding right and left. That is, which way should I turn to have the best life I can? Who should I marry? Where should I go to school? What kind of job should I get? What sort of clothes should I wear today? What should I eat for lunch? And people don't want governing principles. They want specific, particular answers. Now, it may be that God does indeed have an opinion about all of those matters, because there is no realm of life which is utterly devoid of moral or ethical qualities. But I am very skeptical that the Bible teaches that God has a specific or particular will for how every person's life should unfold with meticulous detail. I've never seen a passage of Scripture which, when taken in context, seems to teach that, and I've seen many which seem to teach something contrary. All the same, that is clearly not the focus of Paul here. In Ephesians, Paul is always focused on the corporate rather than the individual. It is God's will for us, and when he does speak of you, it is in the original language a plural you, as in you all. Here, when Paul speaks of us and we, to whom does he refer? Some have suggested that he means all Christians, but this cannot be because in verses 14 and 15, really beginning in verse 13, he speaks to some of his readers and says, you also, thus excluding himself. So some people have supposed that at first Paul was talking about himself and other apostles in distinction from regular Christians. Yet as frequently as people will accuse Paul of doing that, I think it is very rare, if it in fact ever happens, while the apostles were extraordinary in respect to certain gifts and responsibilities, those things are not at all under discussion here. I suggest that instead, when Paul says, you also, he is speaking to Gentile Christians. Now, the reason I make that suggestion is I think that it is explicitly identified in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were afar off, have been brought near By the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For he himself is our peace who has made both one, including himself. So I think it's best to read the pronoun us or we in these early sections of Ephesians, before the introduction of Gentiles and the unification of the both into one, as a reference to Jewish Christians. Thus, Paul is speaking about the will of God regarding Israel and how God made known that will to them. Yet, it is also important here to state that the will of God does not merely refer to what he wants us to do, uh, but what he himself is doing, how he is doing it, and what he intends the end of his work to be. And that is what Paul seems to be concerned with in these texts. The way in which God has made known his will, or should I say the ways in which God has made known his will, are what is meant by the word revelation. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-11, through Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. The will of God is hidden within the thoughts of God, and unless he chooses to reveal it to us, no man can know it. This is why Paul called it a mystery. But the opposite of a mystery is a revelation. A revelation draws back the curtain to show openly what was hidden, and Paul says God did this for Israel regarding his will for them as a people. Now, I corrected earlier to say that he did this in ways rather than a single way, because that is what the Bible itself teaches. If we think of God's will only in terms of what rules he wants us to follow, then we might think of his revelation only in terms of what we read in the Bible, and even more narrowly, only those portions of the Bible that we might call God's law. It is true that God's law is a part of his revelation, Deuteronomy twenty-nine twenty-nine, and beyond that, all that is written is a part and one of the most significant parts of his revelation, but while part, it is not all. The Bible itself says that God's glory and power and majesty and splendor, even his goodness and kindness, are revealed in nature and the visible parts of creation which we as humans might observe and study and Come to understand, Psalms 19, verse 1 and 8, verse 1, as well as Acts 14, 17 and Romans 1, 20. Furthermore, the Bible says that the ordinary functions of the world and the effects which causes tend to generate and the patterns of human behavior which thoughtful men might observe are a revelation of God, who has gifted us with the intellectual capacity to make those observations. This is called wisdom, and when the wisdom is true, the Bible says it is like an oracle of God, Jeremiah 18, 18, 2 Samuel 16, 23. Further still, the incarnation of Jesus was a revelation of God, and perhaps of all the revelations of God, this one was the most profound. I think the text of Scripture tells us that in John 1 and verse 18. He made God known in a way that God had never been known before and never could be known otherwise. But here in Ephesians 1.9, I suggest that Paul has in mind the whole history of Israel as a revelation of God. He describes that history as an administration of "...suitable to the fullness of the times." Some translations will say dispensation instead of administration, but the word properly refers to the management or stewardship of a household. And I suggest that Paul refers here to God's management of history, particularly with respect to the fate of Israel, to the point which he here calls, and elsewhere, the fullness of the times." when Jesus Christ came to accomplish the grand finale of God's plan. When Paul wrote this letter, he had come by virtue of Jesus to see Israel's history in a different light than he had ever seen it before, the light which was cast by the work and words of Jesus Christ. Before Jesus came, this world might have joined the anti-Semitic poet who wrote, How Odd of God! to choose the Jews. Their history seemed to be one of failure, both to live up to the demands of the covenant and consequently to enjoy its blessings. When one reads the book of Psalms, the great prayer book of Israel, you will find it full of pleas and cries for help and complaints that things are not going the way they ought to be going for the righteous and the innocent while the wicked gloat and hold all the power in the world. And how could any of this be? How could a good and just God who said to his servant Moses in the great speech on the plains of Moab recorded in the book of Deuteronomy that God will bless the righteous and bring down the wicked? Well, how could a God like that allow these things to take place as they had? Israel had fallen to the lowest position in the world, enslaved and oppressed by the lawless and the heathen. Yet many of the great prophets seemed to say that uh, God intended Israel to be the greatest nation, the nation that would fill the earth with God's glory, that all other nations would come and submit to God by becoming a part of Israel, or at least becoming their slaves, or, or else be destroyed by them. Had God's plan failed? Had God not kept His word? Yet Paul now sees that the whole story was not told in the book of Deuteronomy. Paul has learned that righteousness could not come through the law to any sinner, whether Jewish or Gentile. All that the old humanity can bring to himself is the wrath of God, because the old humanity is set against God's will— and must be transformed not from the outside in by rules and regulations, but from the inside out by receiving a new heart and a new mind. Paul sees the end goal of God's purposes for Israel no longer simply as their exaltation above the Gentiles, but as their transformation into the humanity God always wanted. Listen again to how he says it. In him also... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. The end of God's purpose for Israel is revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus was exalted above all creation to rule over, not merely the land of Canaan, but the whole earth. This is the inheritance God has promised him, Psalm 2.8, and Israel will receive it with him, in him. He is the one who fills the earth with God's glory. He is the one who fulfilled God's law and merited God's blessing and favor, and in him Paul sees hope that he and his countrymen can finally find the good and glory that was so absent throughout their history. And now that Christ has come and accomplished his work, all the events of Israel's past, which taken in isolation, might have looked like failure, now manifest that God knew what he was doing all along, that God was working all things after the counsel of his will to give those who believed in Israel the first fruits of his kingdom In the world. At this point, I think it is important that we are sure we really understand the story of the Bible. I've heard many attempts to summarize it, which, in my estimation, ended up excluding most portions of the Bible and focusing more on the enjoyment and happiness of humanity than the praise of God's glory. I suggest that the Bible story, properly understood, can be divided into four major stages or movements. Creation, corruption, correction, and completion. If you read the Bible as traditionally arranged, in most English translations at least, uh, it will not follow these four movements chronologically. That's not how God revealed it. Rather, this is the story of God to which the Bible bears witness, the creation is discussed significantly in Genesis 1 and 2, where we learn that God created the world for his own good pleasure and enjoys complete sovereignty over it. At the climax of this work of creation, God made man in his own image, Genesis one 26-28. That is, he created humanity differently from all the rest of creation so that humanity might represent him in the midst of creation and facilitate the praise of his glory throughout it by the wise and gracious stewardship of it. God graced humanity with power to reflect his own wisdom and creativity, to grasp and communicate his attributes which he has revealed in creation by coming to understand the functions and forms in creation more and more and to flourish and promote the flourishing of everything else which God had declared good. The whole of creation with which God was well pleased would be held together by the integrity of humanity through their obedience to God. But in Genesis chapter 3, the story of corruption begins. Humanity is tempted by the devil to reject God's rule over them and seek their own will and wisdom And through this deception, they were drawn into a rebellious and rival kingdom directed by the devil and the spiritual forces of evil that follow him. And when the integrity of humanity was broken, the whole of creation was subjected to a curse. The original humanity became a force for destruction, ignorance, and blasphemy, actively opposed to God's good intentions. For their every thought and intention of their hearts was only evil continually, the Bible says. Genesis 4-11 through 11 continues this story and shows how everything that one might have expected could fix the sin problem and right the wrongs failed to do so. Sinners died, but they had children who sinned like them and even who did worse than their fathers had. Long years passed, but time did not bring improvement. Instead, the earth was filled with violence and evil more and more. Finally, God unleashed the fullness of His wrath and destroyed all but the eight most righteous people on earth and enough animals to repopulate the purged land. But even this did not succeed. Within a short time, this new earth became as corrupt as the old one thus showing that neither death, nor time, nor even divine judgment would save and restore creation. Only grace can do that. So Genesis 12 begins the story of correction, in which God chose a man, Abraham, from the nations, and began to make special promises to him and his family, and work to preserve them from the dangers and problems of the world, even from their own folly and sin. Eventually, Abraham's family became Israel, and God continued to work in them and make promises to them and to give them special gifts like a law, a system of sacrifice, a priesthood, prophets who would speak for him and call them to loyalty to him, a king who would represent him among them and fight their battles for them. He performed amazing miracles and mighty works of providence in their lives. But all of those gifts failed to accomplish what they were intended for. Israel was, throughout its history, really no different than the nations, other than a very small remnant, and at the end of the Old Covenant Scripture, the larger portion of Israel had become disinherited by God and scattered among the nations, while those who remained were a mere shadow of their former selves and a far cry from what God said he had predestined them to become. Then Jesus came. While his own did not see it other than a very small remnant, Jesus was everything that God said Israel was supposed to be. Even in the face of treachery, rejection, and suffering, To the point of a shameful death, he remained steadfastly loyal to God, and consequently he was raised up and given glory and power. He became, in his perfect revelation of the wisdom and character of God, the prophet who reveals God and calls all people to serve and love him. He became, in his own perfect life of love, the law of God, to which all people are called. He became, through his death, the sacrificial system and the priest who could bring remission of sins. He became, through his resurrection and enthronement in heaven, the king who leads God's people to righteousness and wins their battles. He has become, in his own work, the antitype of all the great and mighty deeds of God in Israel's past. He is the true Passover the true Red Sea crossing, the true serpent on the pole at whom the dying may look and live, the true and better Moses and David and Solomon. He restored and regenerated Israel in himself and made them the true congregation of God by bringing them into himself, and he sanctified them and filled them with the Holy Spirit by which they could be remade into his likeness and become the well-pleasing sons of God in him. But think on this. Why does the story of Israel in the Old Covenant Scripture begin with the creation and corruption of the whole world? I suggest it is because the story of Israel is not for Israel only. The story of Israel, which God made known to them in all wisdom and insight, is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth, Ephesians 1 and 10. They were the first to trust and receive God's purpose, but they were not the last. God has taken from Israel and from all the nations to create the new humanity. God has made all who are Christ's to be the true Israel and to share in the promises and gifts that were long ago given to them. God's love and grace extends to his whole creation, and in Christ he aims to conquer it from the devil and reclaim it for himself. This is the final stage of the Bible story, the story of completion. Now, we are not there yet. Great things have happened and great things are happening, but great things are yet to happen still. We are living in the correction stage of God's story even now, but we have hope in Christ because the same God who administered the history of Israel with wisdom and insight through many dangers, toils, and snares to the fullness of the times— is still in control, and he is working all things to the counsel of his will, even in our own lives, even in our modern world, to the praise of his glory. The kingdom is spreading, Oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of His knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.